Soraya, on a scale of one to ten, how disappointing is old Jared Leto? (laughs) (laughs) I think every iteration of Jared Leto is disappointing. (laughs) Wow. Hi, I'm Rachel Handler, and welcome to Lady Problems, where every Thursday, me and a rotating crew of ladies look at the way pop culture has treated women in a given week. It is almost always terribly. This week, I'm hanging out with Hazel Sills. Hello, Hazel. Hey, Rachel. And we're talking to Soraya Roberts, who is a long-form culture writer and the author of In My Humble Opinion, My So-Called Life, which is a book about the best show that has ever existed on this doomed planet. Hello, Soraya. Hello. Thanks for joining us. So we're going to kick things off with an interview with you about your book, Soraya, and then we're going to talk about Tippi Hedren's new accusations against Alfred Hitchcock and what it means to be a man's muse. And we'll solve a lady problem for our friend Kelsey. Soraya, do you want to tell us about your book and why you decided to write it? So ECW, which is the company that published it, um, has a call, sort of an ongoing call-out for pop classics. So I chose my so-called life after having written a short piece for Bitch about sort of what it taught me about beauty, um, because it was one of the rare shows at the time um, to not have these sort of idealized sort of versions of beauty. Um, well, for the women anyway, I guess for the men it kind of it had Jordan, but um, so... Uh, yeah, and then and then as I was doing my research, um, I realized, and I guess I kind of knew this at the back of my head, but I didn't sort of, it wasn't something I totally noticed at the time, that third wave feminism was sort of coming up at the exact same time as the show, and the, the huge takeaway from third wave feminism was to give teen uh, girls a voice, and that's exactly what the show did with Angela. Um, she was kind of our spokesperson a little bit for all the all the girls who felt kind of more outsidery than the other ones. Something that's interesting about my so-called life is, I mean, I was 15 too when I first saw it, and it definitely felt like a very realistic portrayal of everything I was going through, and it felt, you know, very dramatic. And Rachel and I were even talking about this idea of, like, changing friend groups in high school and, like, how earth shat Like, oh, you quit the yearbook? <laughs> like, oh, my God. And But I will say, uh, watching it now, just a little bit older, not a teenager anymore, um, I find that some of the lines that Angela says are, are almost funny now. Like, things that were super meaningful when I was 15, like, they're still meaningful to me today, but they're, they're sort of silly like even the way she you know she talks about her crush jordan which watching the show i'm like girl you could do so much better i mean he's no, gorgeous false. but <laughs> <laughs> no one can do better um uh but yeah i mean one of the things we wanted to ask you was uh the the show sort of treads that line where depending on how old you are it can be like the super you know poignant meaningful representation of like inner life of a teenage girl but depending on how old you are can also seem kind of like not not mocking i don't want to say mocking because it's a very human portrayal but it's like a light sort of ribbing it's kind of funny it's like how you make fun like how i like make fun of my teenage sister a little bit where like i totally like relate to her and i want her to feel hurt but also she's being like sort of absurd i mean sora how do you feel like it does it how do you feel uh like it treads that line for you 
Right. Well, I think I think part of what works really well in that regard is the unreliable narrators. So you can really tell that Winnie Holtzman kind of knew what she was doing, and and she was sort of winking at us, like with the stuff. You know, there's always that line I remember where she's in the boiler room, and she's she's making out with Jordan. She's like, "We never talked, but when we did, it was really meaningful." And then she says <laughs> something like, um, "You have a tiny leaf in your hair." <laughs> <laughs> So, um, like, I think, I think we were, I was aware of it when I was 15, but I think I was so sort of involved in the show that it wasn't as funny as it is now Mm -hmm. watching it. Um, and I also think, um, I was talking to someone else about this and it was just, I was so, um, I was living so much vicarious, like so much more vicariously through Angela that it was really important to me, like all the stuff that was happening to her. Whereas now it's just like, oh, this is a character in a show. Mm -hmm. It's, I can laugh at it and, and, you know, I don't take it that seriously. But at the time it was like a really serious thing to me. Totally. I mean, even when I watched it at like 18 years old, I watched it very wistfully. Like I was looking back at my high school years and still feeling like it was so true and so dramatic and like remembering my, like really hot douchey boyfriend like Jordan Catalano-esque boyfriend so I do think I mean you had a boy you had a Jordan Catalano-esque boyfriend totally oh I did not even know this this is I'm just learning this for the first time she really held that I did I I did no he was very very Jordan Catalano and so I watched it and I was like this is so real like (laughs) but I haven't watched it as an adult I'm curious if we all watched it now how I mean you've obviously watched recently like how do you what What's your take on it watching it as an adult? I mean, it's funny. It actually survives really well. I mean, it's still just because of the way it's shot and the way um, Claire Danes performs. I mean, her performance is such a huge part of it. And she really lived that character. And she was kind of really living it at the time, too, because she was the same age. Um, In my book, uh, there's a quote where she talks about sort of dancing around the character, like certain things would happen to Angela and then her and then the other way around, too. Um, so you really, that's really reflected. And you talk about too, I think a little bit about how Freaks and Geeks was, uh, a a correlative to this show in the sense that, uh, Lindsay Weir was also like a normal teenage girl, but it's funny too, because now I'm saying this and I'm like, okay, but Linda Cardellini and Claire Danes are both fucking gorgeous. (laughs) So it's still kind of ridiculous, but both were canceled after one season, both focused on these quote unquote unglamorous teenage girls. I'm curious, like. How much of that do you feel was because it, they were focused on these unglamorous teenage girls? That show, I mean, we love the show, but it's not like it did particularly well. It lasted for one season. It didn't have great ratings. Um, so, you know, in, in terms of like through the eyes of an executive, why the hell would you do that again? I remember reading this quote by the, um, I think it was the writer of Daria, and he, which sort of came up around the same time, and he he said, it's funny because my show wasn't doing much that was different from my so-called life. Like, this character is sort of an outsider who, who kind of hates everyone and who isn't really that popular or anything. And he said, but it seemed like it was more palatable, my show, because it was a cartoon. Mm. And he, his, his idea about it was that, you know, people want to see glamour because their lives aren't glamorous. So why would you want to watch that on screen? I personally love watching my own life on screen. Right. <laughs> but I don't know how much, you know, I don't know how much your regular Joe or Jane <laughs> is going to want to watch that, 
you know? I mean, I think think if we gave them more of an option to choose whether they want to see that, I think we might be surprised. But as it is right now, I, I just think that the... You know, the way the industry, like I've said this before, I think all the all the men who are like these old white men need to kind of die and they need a few women <laughs> to sort of take their places. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah. um, another thing that, that I that we really liked that you wrote about was Rayanne and Angela's friendship. Um, and, and there's been this sort of renaissance of complicated female friendships. We were saying like Frances Ha and the Neapolitan novels and it felt like Rayanne was really the the romance of the show. Um, and it felt really real. Like, that's how high school friendships are. They're very intense and very sort of dramatic. And um, was that sort of a revolutionary friendship at the time? Because, I mean, I think that's much more of a trope now than it was then. It's funny because I, I would sort of compare it to, um, I would sort of think about Beverly Hills 90210 or um, Degrassi. And um, you wouldn't... Uh, particularly Beverly Hills 90210 in some ways. I'm like, do you guys even know each other? Like the way they would act with each other was so bizarre. And um, the the way this was something that Claire Danes commented on as well, or, or it might have been, yeah, it was Claire Danes who commented on it. Um, AJ Langer would sort of um, take stuff out of her purse during, during while they were shooting. I would just like, you know, put makeup on her lips. She'd feed um, Wilton Cruz, like, various candies she was wearing. And that kind of intimacy um, is not something that you usually see, that kind of, like, marriage almost. Um, like, forget all the talk, like, how intimate they are in terms of talking. It's, it's the behaviors are, are really, really noteworthy. And you'd, it's just something that you still, that you don't even see that much now. Um, I think that, yeah, I'm not sure why that's so rare. I think people are pretty... Uh, one of the things Winnie Holtzman said was uh, one of the one of the things that the execs were really, really um, touchy about was the fact that um, Ricky was kind of feminized, um, even more so than him being gay. So I think anything, like whether it's fluid gender or fluid sexuality or even just like intimacy that's not heterosexual, like... Like at that time, maybe people didn't understand it because mm-hmm. I, I, I know like even now I like will touch people's legs or I'll touch their arms, people who I'm friends with, um, guys or girls. And but it's like I'm aware that some people think that's strange, but it's something that I don't know. I don't consider it a sexual thing, but I think in our culture, it's it's not seen as something you do with friends or whatever. I don't know. Mm. Well, Hazel and I are holding hands right now. <laughs> <laughs> Grazing your face. That's what we do the whole <laughs> Delicately. We're going to talk about a lady problem of the week. And the lady problem is about working with powerful men who control your image and your career. And how do you navigate this shady space between, you know, working with a man and him being your mentor and him Mm -hmm. also being like a perverted asshole? (laughs) Um, Okay, so the New York Post reported uh, that Tippi Hedren reveals in her new memoir 
that Alfred Hitchcock, who she had worked with on the movies The Birds and Marnie, had sexually harassed her during filming of those of those movies. And he repeatedly tried to kiss her and touch her inappropriately. And on the set of Marnie, he actually had... This is so Hitchcock. I don't want to laugh about it. But <laughs> I know. He had installed a door that led directly from his office to her dressing room. And then he would just come into it at all times and, like, touch her and be weird. And she was quoted as saying, it was sexual. It was perverse. The harder I fought him, the more aggressive he became. And she didn't initially come forward because sexual harassment and words like stalking, they just weren't things that people talked about, you know, in the 50s. And the 60s. And for me, the problem is really, you know, like The Birds was her big on-screen debut. And there was just this solid idea of like, oh, you're a Hitchcock girl. Mm -hmm. Like you become a Hitchcock girl and you're super successful. And he kind of makes your career by association. So, I mean, my question is, like, what are the liberties we afford the sort of like mentor-muse relationship? Like are women more vulnerable in those relationships because you're supposed to, you know, just sort of like shut up and and reap the success. And yeah, that is the lady problem. <laughs> just a tiny one. <laughs> I mean, I think like what's really interesting too is we talked about when we were when we were putting this topic together is that so much of the work that Hitchcock does with her and in a lot of his movies is like being a voyeur and like kind of about men like being creeps. <laughs> Or yeah. like, and about women being these objects of of a male gaze. So it's this, it's so twisted, but it's also like it kind of makes sense. And I and and you know he was very into like method directing. And he you know there's this there's this anecdote about on the set of the birds how he like put real birds in that final scene in the attic to attack her. And like he was just like a fucked up dude, like in the name of art. Um, but again, he did make her career, and it's like this complicated. Back and forth that I, and Soraya, we wanted to ask you about it too because you wrote about something similar with John Hughes and Molly Ringwald. Yeah, it's a difficult thing. I mean, with with Hitchcock, I almost like he is like the number one person I want to sit across from and say like, "Tell me about your mother," because <laughs> it's clearly some issue he has with women. And apparently, and I didn't know this, but apparently he was quite effeminate as well. Mm-hmm. And some people wondered if he was actually. Um, you know, not so interested in women, but more so interested in overpowering everyone um, because he had such a, like a bullied childhood and he felt less than and and all that stuff. Um, But in terms of, um, yeah, it's a difficult situation. I've been in the situation before where you want to, you're like, okay, I can put up with this and then I can potentially have something that I wouldn't otherwise have. Mm -hmm. But like it's really hard to know where to draw the line, and in that in that case with Hitchcock and Tippi Hedren, I mean he always had all the cards. Like it's not only that he's Hitchcock; he's the one who sought her out. Um, it's not like she went to him; he saw her in some ad for I think I don't can't remember soap or something. Um, but yeah, he was the one chasing her the whole time, and. It's interesting because I was reading about Grace Kelly and Kim Novak and all those women. And I think in some way they were a little bit um, more assertive, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they were like involved with men or something. So it was almost like they were less, um, it was harder for him to target them. Whereas Mm -hmm. Tippi Hedren sort of on her own. He, she talked about him isolating her, right. and it's just he—he he really sort of, in a really, you know, creepy way, was was pretty good at 
at abusing her, really. Right. And I think she would have, it would probably have sucked with her head. So, like, how is she supposed to, like, make decisions appropriately? There's that, too. Like, it's really, it's easy for us to talk about this when we're sitting here. But when you're actually in the situation, it's like, how do you know what, like, what to do, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, and I think, too, it, it, I mean, obviously, it calls into question the whole art versus the artist debate. And, like, we knew Hitchcock was shady. We didn't know how shady. It's like, can we ever have a man that in that's an artist that doesn't suck on some horrible level? Like, I feel like there's no, like, I, we were thinking yesterday, we were like, is there any non-shady, like, man in a position of power, like, ever? Well, I also just think it's this idea of, like, well, he's the director and he's the auteur and this is just the way it is. I mean, I recently rewatched The Shining for Halloween and remembered how much Stanley Kubrick had basically abused Shelley Duvall on mm-hmm. set, like was constantly yelling at her and was making, you know, the environment she was working in like super fucked up and just like really belittling her. And like, I think now we look at it and we're like, oh, it was something he did, you know, to always keep her on edge on mm-hmm. set. And like when she's crying in those scenes, she's like really crying right like maybe not just because of the movie like because he made her do a scene like 300 times in a row right i mean i don't i don't know i mean when you look at all like the studies about people's behavior and stuff i don't think it's proven that you get more of a result by behaving that way and there are plenty of directors that don't do that like i'm just thinking i I was trying to think myself about any news director relationships that weren't perverse and David Lynch and Laura Dern was one mm-hmm. that I was thinking of um, where he's only ever celebrated her as far as I can tell. And it's, it's been a, it's, she's been great in his movies and it's not like she hasn't cried in his movies. It's not like she hasn't been tortured, you know, in, in terms of her characters, but like, I don't think David Lynch was yelling at her or like assaulting her. Um, you know, it's an, you're an actor, you act, you know? Right. And, and same thing with, uh, Penelope Cruz and Pedro Almodovar, although we were saying that's cause he's gay, <laughs> but like, he was like, he yeah, also like, I was thinking of with, yeah, with Andy Warhol and Edie Sedgwick too. I was right. like, oh, he's gay. <laughs> so really like just work with women or gay men. And then yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, to go back to that, uh, we briefly mentioned John Hughes. Yeah. I know, Soraya, you wrote that piece for Hazlitt about um, John Hughes and Molly Ringgold. I mean, he didn't, he wasn't like abusive, but just this idea of like trying to own your star. Yeah. And maybe you can speak a little bit more about that situation. Yeah, that, that case was, was difficult because um, it was, not hugely talked about. It wasn't until I did the research that I sort of realized that was going on between them. Um, and it, I was always kind of wondering, like, how much there was, like, a, you know, a sexual aspect to it. But, but like, all, all the stuff that I read was, like, no, it wasn't. It was totally just, like, a power trip. Um, but, like, it kind of makes sense because that's how John Hughes, kind of like Alfred Hitchcock, the whole set was, he controlled everything. He controlled the music. He controlled the look. He controlled um, the writing. He controlled everything. Um, so why would she, you know, the woman who's in three of his movies, why would he not be controlling her the most, right? Um, and in terms of the difficulty with that, though, too, is that she was so young. So it's like she, you know, the less, you know, the younger you are, the sort of less 
sort of certain about yourself you are and it's kind of harder to fight that Mm -hmm. and I think that was what happened as she got older she was like fuck this I I don't want to do what he wants and that's when the relationship sort of crumbled and I think that's kind of what happened with um Grace Kelly and Alfred good segue to Grace Kelly (laughs) and Alfred Hitchcock um who I think she got involved with Prince Rainier or something and and then he just he dropped her. Hitchcock dropped her because she wasn't his anymore. Mm-hmm. So, and that I think that comes around back to your point where you were saying, like, how much should we do to sort of maintain these relationships to sort of um, have success or whatever? And I do think it's a sacrifice if you don't do what these people want. But you need to, I don't know, you need to keep your own self intact. I mean, more so than your career I more feel like like I remember in a job a few jobs ago that I won't mention like I there was a really shady dude in charge and he was awful to like the women in our office and I got so angry but the best part was that like he wasn't he didn't bother me but he bothered my coworkers a lot and I never knew what to do like I never knew because he would fire the shit out of me if I said anything um and that was just sort of the culture that was accepted there so I never I still look back and I'm like, should I have said something? Should I have done something? But I knew like it was kind of a self-preservation thing, too. Like, obviously, I wasn't gaining from it, but I was gaining by not saying anything. Well, it's interesting because I had a boss like that, too. I mean, we've all had a boss right, like that. Right. And um, I remember when I left the job, I went to the HR person who was a woman. And I said, I said, look, there's like all these incidences of this person behaving this way. And there's many other women who will attest to it. And the HR woman just like pulled out this huge, this huge stack of files and was like, oh yeah, I have all the complaints. Oh my God. But, um, but there's a guy at the top and he wants to keep him in the position. So there's nothing I can do about it. And you're just like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. (sighs) Um, yeah. So like, who knows if it would have done anything if you said anything. Right. This is like a a larger, I mean, it's a microcosm of like the problem of being alive as a woman in the world. Mm -hmm. And it's all Hitchcock's fault. We blame Alfred Hitchcock. (laughs) So we're going to get into our final segment, which is your lady problems. This is a lady problem from Kelsey, and uh, it's short and bittersweet. Let's play it. Hi, lady problems. It's Kelsey. So recently, my boss had to do a mandatory critique of my work, and then she let me read it. She said all positive things except for the last sentence, which was, she should smile more. I know my boss meant no harm by this, but I was curious about your take on being asked to smile more, especially when coming from another woman. Thanks. Also, by the way, I love your show, and you can edit this part out, but I just want to say how much I love you, and bye. We will not be not editing, editing that out because we need all the validation <laughs> that we can get. So thank you, Kelsey. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously it's total bullshit. I'm shocked it was coming from a woman. I think who, no matter who it comes from, I think it's bullshit. Yeah, Whatever absolutely. your gender is, I think it's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, Soraya? Well, it's hard. Like, I actually... <laughs> I actually went back to read Katie Waldman's, um, you know, how she wrote that piece called, like, The Tyranny of the Smile. So <laughs> I, I went back to read that, and I was like, this is not giving me answers. So I started um, sort of, it, it's a difficult thing because we don't know, I mean, do we know if this woman works in the service industry or if she works in, like, retail? Because it's difficult in those places. I understand where you're coming from. Like, nobody should ask anyone to smile. But 
is part of your job description when you're in, in retail or the service industry. I'm going to assume she doesn't, though, work mm-hmm. in, in there. And in that case, um, you know, I would be really, I would really question how many times that woman has said that to men. Mm-hmm. Um, because in that case, like, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but, but it's, it was a, the reason I was having difficulty with the question was I was like, well, it's, it's hard because in some, like if you're a flight attendant or if you're someone who's, you know, a waitress or something, it's kind of part of, you have to right, kind of do true. that. But I feel like if, but, if that was um, important to her job, she might've shared that, that little piece of yeah, information, think, but maybe, maybe, maybe she would have too. And, and, and yeah, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't, I'm not, I'm someone who has that, like, resting bitch face thing. I think I have, like, all the time bitch face, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, and I've never, you know, I always think with those people, it means even more when they smile, so I, I don't know why people are asking room to smile, like, all the time, because it doesn't mean anything. You should earn it. Right. I also have major resting bitch face, like, my whole life, people are like, what's wrong? And I'm like, nothing's just my face. Um, so let's think of some responses that we can say to people. I mean, I, I probably get told to smile, let's say, conservatively once a week. What about you, Hazel? I can't remember the last time someone told me Like to on smile. the street. I feel like it's mostly on the street. But Not maybe like it, my friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mostly on the street or on the subway. Yeah. One time I got told twice in two blocks by separate people. I was like, this is insane. But so, yeah, what's, let's think of a list of responses that we can say to, to let's, let's be real, men the next time that they ask us to <laughs> smile. And that Kelsey could maybe say to her boss if she was feeling particularly bold. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. We thought of some responses, but we also want you to, to chime in with your own ideas. I thought that you could you could wear a set of fake teeth <laughs> at all times and fill your mouth with with like fake blood it's just so that you're prepared all the time if someone asks you to smile and then when someone does ask you to smile you you smile full <laughs> teeth chomp down on the fake blood packets and then it's not it's like a real you know, show yeah. of a smile. Like they're really getting what they asked for. <laughs> they didn't so say not to have blood. That is my, that's like my, I think that's a cool response. Yeah. Yeah. I respect that. <laughs> I would respect that in an employee for sure. Um, so my, my idea was to say, <laughs> I did smile last night when I was boning your dad. Rage. <laughs> Rage. <laughs> also, my jaw's broken, so I can't smile. Thanks to your dad's dick. This is <laughs> our podcast producers like horrified. Oh my god! Although that makes it sound like her dad has a, like a big dick, so like that's kind of a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Soraya. Soraya, do you have any ideas? Yeah, have you guys seen? Have you guys seen Waitress? You know the part where she just starts smiling and she smiles for like thirty minutes. Yes. <laughs> It's like a whole montage. It's like a week of smiling or something. Yeah. I haven't seen it. Oh, yeah. The other thing I forgot, the other thing I also read was, because this is when I was researching, like, the service sector and smiling. I'm like, how can I help this woman? Um, But uh, apparently um, it shows, if you smile, it shows that you are (laughs) one of the studies. There's all these different studies saying opposite things. But apparently one of them says that it shows that you're incompetent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <If you smile. laughs> so, so there's real benefits also, to frowning yeah 
Um, when you say incompetent, do you mean like people feel like you're incompetent or that you actually are incompetent? Like, what does that mean? I think it means that, um, well, the idea is that uh, when men frown or when they're sort of really stern, it means they sort of, they're on top of things. And when you're smiling, there's a certain, um, I don't know, flittiness, I guess that's that's the assumption. Mm-hmm. There's also a study done um, with with babies, apparently, where all the babies that smiled, um, everyone assumed they were girls, and all the ones that were crying, they thought they were guys. <laughs> I'm thinking of Hillary right now at the debates when mm-hmm. people were getting mad at her for smiling. There was like that first debate, and she was smiling because she was laughing because right. it was going so well for her. <laughs> and people were like, oh, Oh, what she's smiling at? She's like, like she's at like a baby's birthday party or something. And... I hate baby's birthday. Parties. <laughs> that was a baby's birthday party. <laughs> oh, oh, that was good. That was fucking good. Okay. <laughs> I think we'll end. On that. All right, we're gonna end on that note. Yeah. Thank you, Kelsey. We hope that we helped you a little bit. Um, and everyone who's listening, make sure that you call and leave us a message too. We're here to answer any questions about your lady problems, whatever they may be. Give us a call at 205-677-5239. That's 205-677-LADY. We are here for you. Uh, And Soraya, thank you so much for being on today. Uh, We had the best time with you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. Soraya Roberts, long-form culture writer and author of In My Humble Opinion, My So-Called Life, a great little book about the best show ever. You can pick it up wherever books are sold. And I'm Rachel Handler, and this has been Lady Problems, and we will see you guys next week. This episode of Lady Problems was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovic for the MTV Podcast Network with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. 